in the 12th season of this podcast, we're going to get somewhat unordinary and take a turn towards the sacred and the shining ones. In other words, what we're going to do is to take a look at five different gods. Now, suffice it to say, these are beings with powers a little greater than ours. And if we let them, they're beings that'll take us to new levels of consciousness beyond the profane concerns of everyday life. So let's cross that domestic threshold, shall we? And make our way towards that sanctified dimension. So here we go. Everyone bring out your cups. It's time to pour your libations to those exalted and divine ones, without which the commonplace might rule. This is the wisdom of, and this is episode five. It's the pillar of fire. It's the burning bush. It's he who likes to take his daily walk in the Garden of Eden in the cool of the evening. It's the one and only Yahweh. fascinating things about uh, the Greek gods. It's just the, the sheer variety of them. Now, that variety, the multitude of powerful deities with really different and competing interests. From a human point of view, you'd have to be walking on eggshells. Like, you could be doing the right thing, at least in the eyes of, say, Apollo. But unbeknownst to you, your very same action is ticked off Aphrodite and Poseidon, he's keeping a glowering eye on you. So, you know, it's kind of like, imagine if you had two dads. Like, like today, just by coincidence, I'm about to, to get my third booster vaccine. But I never told you guys, like, I do have two dads. One of them is actually the famous Dr. Fauci. And the other one, I call him Papa Joe. It's, you would probably know him better as Joe Rogan. So I'm expecting to come home today and I see Dr. Fauci first, and he's going to be so pleased. He's going to be so proud of me for getting my third booster shot. Probably take me out for a hot fudge Sunday of sorts. But then I got to keep an eye out from behind. I think Papa Joe might come and grab me and put me in a reverse chokehold of some kind. Right? This is what it's like living under the yoke of the Greek gods, at least how I imagine it. But then you've got Judaism. Look at Yahweh, you know, called the one true God, and then simply later, the one and only God. It really does simplify things. The rules may be strict, they may be hard to understand, but at least it's one set of rules. They may be long, they may be confusing, but at least we know them. So, tell us about this one true God, the I am what I am, Yahweh. Your, your modern day analogy is funny. But the, the really scary thing is, I think there's, there's more orthodoxy and religiosity going on in our, in our Papa Joe, in our Papa Fauci today, than there ever was in ancient Greece. I mean, I think that in ancient society, you'd, you'd move from God to God quite easily. I don't think we can say the same about our, our factions today, right? Anyway, uh, we're, we're a little off track here. So let's uh, get back to point. 
So for those, and I'm assuming there are only few of you who don't know, let's start, as usual, with a brief summary. So Yahweh is the God of ancient Israel, who chooses a certain people, the Israelites, as his own. He's uh, viewed as the creator of the universe. And, as you said, he marks the beginning of monotheism, as he's eventually said to be the one and only true God of the world. Yahweh was then later developed by the early Christians as their God, who had sent his son Jesus as the promised Messiah. And uh, here's an interesting tidbit, but not that shocking really. It turns out that uh, Yahweh, or God, had a wife, Ashara, or Asherah, a deity in her own right. Unsurprisingly, over time, she seemed to have been slowly edited out of the Bible. Since you so viciously teased me about watching The Sopranos too much a few episodes ago, I won't bring them up again. So instead, I'll bring up something that is absolutely impossible to make fun of, Star Wars. Let's look at Luke Skywalker, a character in the original trilogy that started out as a whiny kid, a little petulant, overeager, and completely naive. But at the end of the first trilogy, he's been through a lot. He's learned to sacrifice, to control his emotions, and he really has become the truly noble hero that the galaxy needed. But then, fast forward a few decades, and a whole new crop of writers somehow had a very different take on good old Lukey. The Disney crew somehow saw this guy as most likely to grow into be a smelly, unkept space hermit who abandons everyone and everything that mattered to him and those that he held near. Now, I'll just sit and sulk for the next few years doing nothing. That doesn't strike me as Luke Skywalker. So now I'm forced to waste my life trying to reconcile the fantastic triumphant feeling of the end of the original trilogy with the loser slash failure they had him become. If I was more of an adult, I think I'd be spending my time thinking maybe about a similar discrepancy, like the one between, I don't know, the heavy Jesus influence we seemingly have on God in the New Testament, a kinder, gentler supreme being, versus the, dare I say, somewhat nasty tone that we have in the Old Testament. Yeah, you know, now, now that I think about it, you're, you're right about Luke there. I mean, like you said, the young version was just so um, perky and, and sort of uh, happily empty compared to that uh, dark and brooding older one, right? Well, okay, since we've touched on the, on the theme of the dark and the brooding, let's go there. So, one of the major issues with the Old Testament God is this idea that he's a, he's a morally perfect being, that he's omnibenevolent. That's to say, it seems pretty difficult to, to reconcile this quality he supposedly has of being um, all good with a, with a biblical portrayal of him. I mean, first of all, God there doesn't even seem to hide his responsibility for evil or cruelty. For, for example, in, in the book of Isaiah, he's made to say, I am the Lord, and there is no other, and I make weal and create woe. I am the Lord who does all these things. And of course, it's not that hard to see all this woe that this Old Testament God creates. I mean, for example, he, he sanctions slavery 
He, he kills the, the firstborn of every Egyptian family. And he commands death for adultery, just to take a very few examples. Now, again, the issue here seems to be that if, if God is responsible for such things, then doesn't that show that he's not a, a morally perfect being? That he's not all-loving or all-caring? In other words, how can a, a supposed all-loving God allow evil and suffering to happen? which it most clearly does, all the time since the dawn of humanity, right? Now, basically, this is what's come to be known as the problem of evil. And I think it's considered to be the major objection to the Judea-Christian concept of God. Now, of course, many try to escape from this problem by, by claiming that evil is actually a consequence of our freely chosen actions. And so, you know, it, it's not God's fault. But needless to say, there are some major problems with this. I mean, first of all, what about, I don't know, completely natural evils, like, uh, like earthquakes and tsunamis? We don't have a hand in those things, right? And if God's not only morally perfect, but also all-powerful, you'd think that he'd, he'd prevent those atrocities from happening. But maybe a more powerful criticism is this. Remember that God is also supposed to be all-knowing, too. But, well, free will just seems to be incompatible with the foreknowledge possessed by an omniscient being. In other words, if God knows everything, then He also knows what we'll do with our, our so-called free will. So, not only are we in some sense not really free then, because what we'll decide to do is already known in advance by God, and so determined to turn out that way. But even worse than this, it seems then that God created us with the full knowledge of the widespread suffering we'd cause, and He decided not to do anything to prevent it, when He certainly could have. Okay, well, what's the implication of this? Well, maybe we should conclude that if God exists— He's just not all that good. I mean, hey, you might even argue that goodness would be a restriction on God's omnipotence, right? In other words, maybe God isn't all good because that would severely limit His power. Anyway, that God isn't so obviously good seems to be what the, the great tragic figure Job concludes, you know, in the book of Job, an absolutely astonishing work from the Old Testament itself. Yes, uh, Job believes that God exists, and yes, he thinks he's all-powerful. But he clearly doubts whether he's just and good. Now, why is this? Well, because Job has been made to suffer terribly, but yet knows deep in his bones that he's done absolutely nothing wrong in his life. So again, what's the suggestion here? Well, maybe we just have to bite the bullet. That's to say, if the world and the human condition is some kind of reflection of God and His work, then maybe the, the most honest thing to say about God's creation is, well, exactly what you would expect the work of an unchecked, unlimited, all-powerful being to be. Namely, a full world without discriminations. A world that contains in it absolutely everything, from the highest of highs to the lowest of lows, one of both weal and woe.
It's funny how time can be warped, especially viewing something over an especially long distance. Like, if we're looking at today, good old modern times, let's be honest, if someone said they had a deep and meaningful conversation with a burning bush, the knee-jerk reaction would be, that's utter bull. Or if we saw a father who was seconds away from reenacting Bob Dylan's opening verse to Highway 61 Revisited, you know, the, you know, the God say to Abraham, kill me a son. Abe said, man, you know, I won't do the whole verse, but you know, the unenlightened amongst us would simply look at pops over there and say, that guy is crazy. The more sympathetic might wonder about uh, schizophrenia, or even if, you know, this modern Abe was on some sort of particularly powerful hallucinogenics. Either way, the amount of people that would buy it as, you know, some sort of real conversation with God would be statistically zero. But if you transfer the same exact stories to a handful of millennia ago, and you've got hundreds of millions who totally buy into it, you know, they would say that's a, that's a different time. They'll say it's a distant time, one of miracles and all that. But that's just one type of distances and how things can warp. What about the pain of long distance relationships? Not one with a guy or a gal who lives, you know, all the way in Saskatoon or something, but one with an impossibly distant, unknowable cosmic entity. Yeah, so uh, let's talk about just this sort of uh, long-distance relationship. But first, let me, um, as usual, back up a bit and, and set the greater context, because I think it's important to your question. Okay, so in places before the establishment of the Hebrew religion, like in, uh, in Egypt and Mesopotamia, I think it's safe to say that the divine was understood as entirely imminent. That's to say, the gods were in nature. For instance, um, the Mesopotamians viewed the, the sun as the god Shamash, and the Egyptians saw the heavens as the, as the divine mother. Now the point is that for, for these people, the gods were, were in the stuff of the cosmos and of the world. They were in nature. And that had an important implication. It meant that there was an, there was an important connection between these people and nature which is to say, the divine. And because there was a, a close relationship between humans and their, their natural phenomenological world, that meant that they could in some sense know and be in communion with their gods, which is to say that those gods all around them in nature, they weren't inanimate and they were not impersonal. No, these people felt and sensed them with all of their being. They were part of the, the very heartbeat and rhythm of their days. Okay, well, Yahweh, the God of the, of the Hebrews, wasn't like this at all. No, he, he absolutely transcended nature altogether. He wasn't in nature. So, the earth wasn't divine, and the sun wasn't divine, and neither was the heavens. If they had some value, it was more like, a, like an indirect one maybe as something like uh, reflections of Yahweh's greatness. Actually, you know, now that I think about it, for the Hebrews, it's not even possible to, to name God. I mean, it's hard not to forget that, that famous episode in, in Exodus, right? You know, the one where Moses asks God, 
what he should tell the children of Israel about their father's name. To, to which God responds, Just tell them that I am that I am. Well, what does that mean exactly? I mean, who knows for sure. But I think the, the suggestion is probably something like this. The God of the Hebrews, that which is what it is, is the sort of being that's entirely unconditioned by everything. He's just, um, he's just pure being, without conditions of any kind. That's why he's uh, without a name. Because, I mean, think about it. A name would qualify him. It, it would apprehend him. And so, it would limit him. Actually, you know, we would limit him if we attributed to him any positive property at all. And, well, that's why he's often given um, negative properties. You know, we say God's not finite, or he's ineffable, or he's uh, invisible. In this way, we, we preserve his, his limitless nature. I have to say, though, the problem with this is that we do it at the expense of, of pushing the idea of God beyond our, our comprehension until it's not even clear that we have any sense of what it is we're referring to when we talk about Him. I mean, for example, we say that God is um, immaterial, right? That He's not composed of matter. Another negative property, by the way. But here's the thing. How exactly do we imagine an immaterial being? when it would seem that the, the concept of matter is essential to our concept of being, right? In other words, we're told that God is a being, but that at the same time, He doesn't occupy space, doesn't have any dimensions, and can't be perceived or measured in any way. But this renders the concept of being meaningless, no? Anyway, uh, back to the, to the point about names limiting God. So the same thing would apply to any pictorial or, or sculptural representation of him as well. I mean, think about it. How could total perfection, and what's boundless, be given a form or an outline? At the end of the day, it wouldn't matter how much time and skill was put into creating an image of God. Because what's completely pure and unqualified is always going to be defiled and offended by a representation. Okay, but now notice a seeming consequence of such a, a conception of God. Namely, everything finite, everything material, everything natural, and everything human is going to be reduced to nothingness in the face of this, this perfect abstraction, this um, absolute unconditioned value, which is God. In other words, all concrete and natural phenomena are devaluated before God we're, we're unclean. We're, we're filthy rags. We're dust. And like I said earlier, because he's almost an abstraction, this isn't the kind of God that we could ever know or, or, or feel in comfortable communion with. I mean, after all, how many figures do we meet with in the Old Testament who are, who are living in a kind of terrible, anxious isolation across from this completely transcendent God? I mean, there's Abraham. There's Jacob. And then, of course, there's, there's poor Job again, just to mention a few. To say the least, um, there is nothing soothing about their relationship with God. There's no um, mother goddess to console them or to, to listen or, maybe most importantly, to relate to.
I don't know, maybe maybe all this is the sacrifice you make when you draw one God out of the profusion of them and elevate him entirely above nature and the world and attribute to him total, unconditioned, pure being and total value. I mean, what could possibly compare to this? And, and who could ever relate to it? I don't know, maybe this is why the desert appears so frequently in the Old Testament. Because it expresses the solitude, the emptiness, and the loss of connection to the natural world that we're left with when we hold to the absolute transcendence of God and with Him everything sacred and of genuine value. On a separate but not a totally unrelated point, I wonder why it is we're so pulled towards the the transcendental when it comes to meaning and value. Why have and and do so many of us look for meaning beyond life itself and not down here, in the here and now? Well, I'm not sure, but I, but I think it's probably in part because we we associate what transcends us with eternity and with permanence. To go back to what I was saying earlier, that's certainly how St. Augustine interpreted God's self-designation to Moses, you know, that I am that I am. That's to say, he took this name to mean that God never changes. But my point here is that, is that we somehow think that what's permanent is better or has more value than things which are finite. But if that's the case, does it, does it really make any sense? I don't think so. No, things don't gain in meaning or value just by going on for a very long time, or, or for that matter, forever. Actually, I think you could say they lose it. Whether it's a, a piece of music or a loving glance at someone, everything has its allotted time. These things don't need to go on forever in order for them to mean what they do to us. In fact, if they did, I'm not sure they would mean anything at all. That marks the end of season 12. I hope you uh, found some of it interesting. I mean, from our point of view, if we manage to uh, light a little uh, wildfire of thought here and there, then it's all been worth it for us, for sure. Okay, so what's up in season 13? Well, we're heading back to the great works of literature again. Okay, so thanks for listening, and stay tuned.